You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Welcome to Salem again. Uh, Ben's going to be preaching on Acts 18, 1 through 18. Give me a chance to find that in your Bible or device. And you can stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. (coughs) After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila. A day of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, the worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in vision. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, because I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was, open, was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or ambitious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. They drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Socrates, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and within Priscilla and Aquila. At Sinitri, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. This is the word of God for the people of God. So this is actually uh, Ascension Sunday. Uh, And now that we've been going through the book of Acts and I've been talking about the Ascension every week, you know what that means. This is the Sunday in the year that we celebrate uh, the ascension of Christ. Um, 
And so uh, we have been saying throughout this sermon series that um, the ascension is the key to the book of Acts. It happens in the very first chapter. And then um, from that point on, Jesus is, is ruling uh, in the unseen realm. So uh, when he ascended, he basically um, went through kind of the, uh, the portal, if you will, into the upside down, into the invisible realm. And in that invisible realm, we believe that he is reigning. He's not up in the sky. He's not up in heaven somewhere. He's all around us. Uh, and he is ruling this world. And so if you think about Luke Acts as a single book, the, the author of Luke, the doctor who met Paul along the way, he wrote Luke. And then Acts is really just part two. And so Luke Acts is all the story of the life of Jesus. The first part is when uh, he is you know, in a physical body. The, the last part is when he's ascended. And he's still in a body, but it's some kind of this spiritual body. And from there, he's ruling the world. So now, the new thing that's going on with the ascension is that he has power at a whole different level. A cosmic level of power. And what is he doing with the power in the book of Acts? He's sending out his people... Uh, to spread the love of God, uh, to be witnesses to the reign of Christ, the reign of grace all over the world. Um, he sent them out. It started in Jerusalem and it spread out to Judea, Samaria, and now the ends of the earth. And that's where we are now. We're now in the city of Corinth, uh, which to them in Jerusalem would have been like towards the end of the earth. And um, in verse 9, we see Paul uh, terrified uh, to continue preaching because of what's happened to him. And uh, Jesus says, and this is the power, he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent and I'll protect you. And, uh, and that's kind of the key verse I want to look at, that, um, that Paul, in this moment of fear, I mean, he's obviously afraid or Jesus wouldn't have said, do not be afraid. And in this moment of fear, Jesus injects these words of encouragement uh, right, into the, right into his soul. And empowers him to witness for two more years in that city where he's pretty much afraid every day that he might be killed or tortured or um, put in prison or beaten. So I want to look at uh, these encouraging words of Christ. um, That verse 9, which I think is like the centerpiece of this passage. And I want to look at what that, that phrase, that vision where Christ came to him in a vision, what that did to Paul. The strengthening. And I want you to think about the way that you can say encouraging words. I mean, obviously you're not the, the risen, ascended Christ. But you can say on his behalf encouraging words to people and it will strengthen them. Like it will actually, they say that uh, saying certain words can change someone's like brain chemistry. Like immediately. Uh, and, and then farther, like develop new neural pathways eventually. So our encouragement is not to be underestimated. Uh, so I want to look at the encouragement uh, and then the strengthening from the encouragement. So verse 1, Paul left Athens, where we saw him last week, and frankly, not a lot of fruit from that um, time in the city of Athens. Uh, Not a lot happened there. He wasn't there very long. It was kind of a sideshow, detour. Uh, He's gone from Athens, Greece. Now he's gone 50 miles west to Corinth, which is where there's a much, much bigger city, more important city than Athens. Not anymore, but it was then. It would have been one of the top five cities in Rome. Um, kind of like maybe Houston, if you think about America. It's, it's a huge port, uh, one of the biggest ports, the largest port in Europe, one of the biggest in the whole Roman Empire, um, only after Alexandria. And uh, apparently there were 300,000 citizens and 450,000 slaves. That's, and that, I told you uh, last week or two weeks ago that, that, that the number of uh, Roman, uh, people in the Roman Empire that were slaves was about half. So this is even more than that. Um, and there was a... Uh, 
huge amount of uh, traffic coming through. There's a lot of sailors came through. There's a lot of debauchery. Um, the Temple of Aphrodite was there. It had a thousand priestesses. So if you've read the letter of the Corinthians, you know about the uh, sexual immorality of the city of Corinth. So then it says in verse 2, Paul walks into Corinth. Like, no problem. He finds Aquila and Priscilla, these two Jewish people who've been exiled from Rome. He's like, let's take this city. I've done this before. Uh, I've been there before. You know, we've done this in Philippi. Uh, we've done this in Thessalonica. Uh, and now we're here to do it again in Corinth. Uh, so these two, Priscilla and Aquila, are, they're, they're a power couple. They're one of the more interesting couples in the New Testament. They show up several times. They're both teachers. They actually teach Apollos. So it's Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos when he was not understanding the way correctly. And this is the first time we meet them. And they were in Rome. I don't know how they got to Rome as Christians, but they were some of the very first Christians in Rome. Um, Because we know this event right here happened in exactly 51 AD. I'll talk more about that. But this event is happening in 51 AD, the summer of 51. Exactly. That's when this is happening. So somehow by that time, Aquila and Priscilla, these Jewish people who become converts, maybe they got converted at Pentecost. They went up to Rome. And then when they were in Rome, the Emperor Claudius kicked out all the Christians. Uh, made a decree that there were these riots being caused. And so he sent all the Christians away. And we have an actual record from a very famous Roman historian, Suetonius. And Suetonius says that uh, there were these riots being caused in Rome by a certain Crestus. C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. It's one of the very earliest... Uh, Descriptions of Jesus outside of the Bible. This guy, Suetonius, is not a Christian. This is one of the ways we know for a fact that Jesus is a real historical figure. Who was being worshipped quickly in 51 AD? Because Suetonius told us that. So if anybody ever tells you that Jesus was not a real person, it is historical fact that he was. Because Suetonius says these riots were caused in Rome by a certain Crestus. And because of those riots, Aquila and Priscilla have come to Corinth... And Paul comes into Corinth and he meets Priscilla and Aquila. So you've got three immigrants in a massive city. They're probably living in a cheap hotel, some kind of transitional housing. They're working construction. They're blue-collar workers. Well, not really construction, but kind of like that. They're working with leather. They're building tents. They're building stuff with their hands. And they're ready to conquer Houston. You know, these three people in this huge city of Corinth, and they're ready to go. They're ready to preach the gospel. So it says in verse 3 that he stayed with them and worked with them. Imagine them in the Agora in their little tents in the daytime. They're making leather things. They're building tents in the daytime. And then on the weekends, Paul goes to the synagogue and he uses his mouth as his weapon. Uh, it says in verse 4, he reasoned. And that word, that word is used a lot in the book of Acts. If you, just start, if you just look for the word reason a lot, it's used a lot in the book of Acts. Christianity is a very rational religion. Um, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, persuading Jews and Greeks. Again, reasoning, persuading. We don't yell at people. You know, we don't manipulate people. I mean, Christians have done it, but that's not the way Paul did it. We reason, we, we persuade, we give arguments, we tell stories, we show them our lives. And He's doing this. And this is rabbinic style. If you know rabbinic style, it's back and forth. You, you, you ask a question, they give you an answer, you respond. Back and forth, back and forth. Not pushy, not manipulative, 
But in verse 6, it says that the synagogue leader, at a certain point, after all this reasoning, people have been persuaded and they started to get nervous. And Paul has seen this happen before. And it says that they opposed him and they reviled him. And at this point, you would think Paul would be ready to get out of there because he has seen this movie before. Okay, in Lystra, in Turkey, he was stoned. He was dragged away. He thought he had died. Almost, maybe he did die in Lystra. And then in Philippi, we saw this again. He was beaten. He was thrown in prison. This very same thing was happening because he was teaching the synagogue. People were being converted. Same story. Thessalonica, he's attacked by a mob. And then in Athens, he's mocked. But he doesn't leave. Paul doesn't move out of the suburbs of Corinth. He stays. In fact, it says, in a classic move by the Apostle Paul, it says, verse 7, he went to the house of Titius Justice, which was next door to the synagogue. So he just plants himself right next door to the synagogue, fearlessly, you know, right in, in the line of fire. This is courage under fire. We had a neighbor on our street who once, uh, who hated us. Uh, they lived, you know, they looked at, they could look down at us, uh, these neighbors, and they didn't like us. And that wasn't, that was not comfortable. Not at all. Some of you have had that happen. Uh, this is way, way worse. He's living in the house of Titius Justice next to the synagogue, and they are opposing him and reviling him. And Paul knows from experience that they might kill him eventually. So this is way worse. And then in verse 8, Many Corinthians are believing and being baptized. And then the, the real kicker is that the synagogue ruler, a guy named Crispus, the guy who was the ruler of the synagogue, when he became a Christian, there was real trouble. And this is extremely threatening now to the, the powers that be when the synagogue ruler defects and becomes a Christian. And so I can imagine that as Paul is baptizing Crispus, you know, he's pouring water on his head. I, uh, Crispus, child of the king, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As he's doing that, his hands are probably shaking. You know, his right eye is going to be twitching because he knows that in doing this, he's going to be in trouble. He's going to be in big trouble, which we're going to see later on does happen. But before that happens, this is where the vision occurs. And I love this vision in verse 9. Jesus came to Paul one night in a vision. And um, this is not just uh, like an angel. Um, you know, people say they experience it with angels. I believe that's true. But this is actually uh, Jesus himself, the man who is still alive. Uh, he himself comes to Paul in a vision at night. And we've been talking about signs and wonders a lot, where there's this the thin membrane between the seen and unseen will melt away sometimes. And that's what's happening here. Coming from the other side of reality, the side that we cannot perceive. And it says that Jesus told him, as he so often does, do not be afraid, because I know you're afraid. Keep on speaking, because I know you want to stop, keep speaking, and, be, and do not be silent. And I love how um, in the story of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, they're surrounded by this terrifying Syrian army, this huge army. And the young Elisha is freaking out. And the older Elijah is kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi with Luke Scott. He, he, he says in, in 2 Kings 6.6, 6, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And then suddenly uh, they open their eyes. Their eyes are open and they look around and it says there are chariots 
of fire everywhere with horses of fire. And they realize there's this huge unseen realm that's protecting them. And that's what Paul is realizing here. That not only Jesus, but he says, I have a lot of people in the city too. And he says in verse 10, I am with you and no one who attacks you will harm you. He doesn't say no one's going to attack you. He says no one who attacks you will harm you. That I'm going to protect you. It's not going to happen again like it did in Lystra or Philippi or Thessalonica. I'm going to protect you. And I don't know if you've ever felt this supernatural calm before in the middle of a time where you should not have been calm, where you had to say something hard. You had to keep speaking. You had to maybe even like the way Paul is doing, you have to expose some things, talk about some really hard things. You know, Paul's talking about human sin, that we crucified Christ. Um, he's, he's telling people things they don't want to hear. And yet he has this incredible supernatural calm. And that is on offer if you're a believer. Because Jesus uh, lives, as I said, just on the other side. And he has the power to encourage you, to speak encouragement into your soul when you're afraid. You know, whether that be at a dining room table and you're talking to a relative, someone in your family, or in a coffee shop. And you have to gently confront someone on something, you, some pattern you've seen in their life. Or a classroom where you're going to say something to the whole class. You're a teacher. It's intimidating. Or a boardroom where you're going to say something really unpopular to the whole board. The power of the king of kings is that he says, I will be with you in those hard conversations as you try to bless people. And it's not so that you can be like strong. You know, it's not like having a Lance Armstrong bracelet or something. Not, not to show how strong you are, but to show how loving Christ is. But I'm going to empower you to be the source of loving words. I have many in this city who are yet to be my people, verse 10. That's a really encouraging thing when you think about telling people about the love of God. He's telling you, I have many people in your life who are yet to be mine, but they will be mine. Because I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to use you to bring them in. I have many in this city who are yet to be my people. They are my people, and I'm going to bring them in. So he gives you the strength to fight for the souls of your friends that you love. And endurance in your suffering to display his love. That's the first point. Is the encouragement of Christ. I will be with you. They might attack you. They're not going to harm you. Keep speaking. Don't be afraid. That's the encouragement. Now the strengthening is what happens to Paul. When he hears these words of encouragement. And again think about sometime in your life. You've been encouraged powerfully. And how that continues to stick with you. Just reverberates down the corridors of your life. It says in verse 11. That he stayed a year and six months. And he stayed that entire time teaching the word of God among them. The very thing that he knows could get him in trouble. He's teaching the word of God. And like I said, uh, you can say things um, that keep people in the fight. You can actually uh, tell people things about themselves or about God or what you see God doing in their lives. And it can keep them going. You know, another week, another victory. Fighting off a recurring nightmare. Um, that's what's going on with Paul. Every single day that he stays in the city, it's the power of the words of the encouragement of Christ. Ringing his head. And then finally it happens. Right? We see it in verse 12 that finally the very thing that he dreads actually occurs. And this is in the summer of 51 AD. Because we found an inscription uh, that actually says uh, that Gallio was the proconsul 
of the city of Corinth in 51 AD. In fact, we know that he was there for one year exactly. He got there in the summer of 51. He left in the summer of 52. And we know that he has just gotten there at this point. So this is somewhere between like either June, July, or August of the year 51 AD. The entire New Testament is dated around this fact. So if you question the uh, historicity of the Bible, uh, this is probably the strongest case maybe of all of an absolutely rock-solid fact that supports a lot of the dating of Scripture. So it says in verse 12 that the, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal in 51 AD, June, July, or August. And the reason they attacked Paul at that time, like they waited, notice they waited a year and six months. So they didn't do it immediately. Why did they wait till Gallio came? Um, it's because um, when a new pro- proconsul comes to town, they're going to be a weak proconsul. It's like a new sheriff is in town. They don't know what they're doing. So this is the time to attack. And by the way, Gallio, you can Google Gallio. You see a picture of his face. He's the younger brother of the philosopher Seneca. Just more historical facts. So anyway, Gallio was sent there. Um, they thought he was going to be a weak proconsul, but he was actually sent there. The reason he was sent there was to implement this new policy of Rome, which was we are not going to keep hearing these minor disputes uh, among religious clans. So he was actually sent there for the very reason that was opposed to what they wanted. You know, they, they, want, they wanted to attack him because he was weak, and actually he was there to do the exact opposite. And so in verse 14 it says, um, this is Gallio speaking, uh, he says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, I would do something about it. But this is just a little matter of your words and your little names and your laws. You know, you, you get the sense he doesn't like them, the way he's talking. He's kind of mocking them. This is just a matter of your words and your names and your laws. So not only does Gallio not punish Paul, as they were hoping, he actually drives the accuser away, the attacker away. Because sure enough, just like Jesus said, they attacked him to harm him, and, and Jesus said no. He blocked it. Blocked the fist of the bully. It says in verse 16, he drove them from the tribunal. And this is forever, by the way. This is a really, this is like a landmark Supreme Court decision in the history of the Roman Empire. Because from this point on, after Gallio made this ruling, from that point on, Christianity is officially protected as uh, under the umbrella of Judaism. Because Gallio is basically saying that Christianity is now part of the protection of Judaism. We just, he was saying we consider this part of the larger movement of Judaism. So not only did Jesus protect Paul, but he protected his entire church across the entire empire from this point forward. I think about like when the way Pharaoh was attacking the Israelites, God's people, and just relentlessly coming after them, you know, over and over. Nothing would stop the Pharaoh from attacking them. Until finally, uh, God just closes the Red Sea on Pharaoh and his army. And that's like, that's what's going on here. All this attack of Paul and attack of the way, attack of Christianity. Finally, God just like, enough. I'm ending this now. And Gallio makes this ruling. So... Jesus does not promise us the absence of suffering. Quite the opposite. He tells Paul in Acts 9, 16, I will show you how much you must suffer for me. So he's not saying that you're not going to suffer. That's not the promise here. The promise is that when you suffer, that he's going to protect you from certain things you could not handle. 
That when you suffer, he is going to be with you in the suffering. And he's going to give you a peace and a calm and a presence that you could never have expected. At one of the lowest points in in our lives, um, when we were really struggling to parent, um, these parents came to us at a wedding, actually. A wedding um, was a rehearsal dinner at a wedding. And uh, they had a child who was an addict. And uh, they, were, they were telling me about their experience with this, their child, their son. And they said, in the worst of times, we would, we would absolutely panic. Because we would imagine the terrible things that were going to happen tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. And we knew they would happen because they'd been happening for years. But then they said, but what we didn't think about was the fact that although we could envision the terrible things that would happen, we never thought about or could envision the ways that Christ would meet us in those times. Never had an imagination for that. And they were saying, so what you don't know, yeah, you can see down the corridor of time and think there's going to be those terrible things happening. But what you don't see is the way you're going to be protected by Christ in those times. So whatever you're going through, the king is not leaving. He's not going anywhere. And ultimately, we believe, and this might take a long time to see. So I'm not saying you're going to see it anytime soon. But we do believe that ultimately he works out everything together for our good. That he takes these evil things, these terrible things, like all these people attacking Paul and beating him in the past and stoning him and throwing him in prison. And and the catastrophe becomes a eucatastrophe. You know, and the word eucatastrophe is coined by Tolkien. I mention it all the time. It's like euphoria. It's in the shape of a, a U because what looks like the worst thing actually becomes this thing of beautiful redemption. And I've seen that in my life so much. It's like, it's not just the cross uh, and the resurrection. Although that is the ultimate new catastrophe. Death of Christ hits the bottom, buried three days, down to hell, and then all of a sudden, right back up the other side, like a roller coaster. And um, I think these things happen in our lives all the time. Sometimes they're really long. Sometimes they go for, you know, 40 years. Sometimes they're really short. Um, But in this case... You've got verse 6, he's opposed and reviled. Verse 9, he's terrified. Verse 12 is a riot. Verse 14, he's on trial. He thinks it's it. It's over. But then suddenly, verse 15, the accuser is driven away. 16, Christianity is legalized. 17, Sosthenes is converted. Another synagogue ruler is converted. And then 18, Paul is emboldened to stay and preach. And then at the very end, the last thing that happens in the passage is he cuts his hair. And you're like, why is that the highest extreme of the eucatastrophe? He cut his hair, verse 18. At Syncria, when he left Corinth, he finally cut his hair. Why did he cut his hair? Because he was under a vow. He was under a vow. So here's what I think happened. We don't know for sure, but this is what scholars said. That when he got that vision, as soon as that vision happened, he made the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow is, I am not touching my hair my beard, uh, I will not touch my hair again until we see this thing through together. Until you and I, Jesus, are out of Corinth safely, I'm not touching my hair. So, two years, his hair is growing. But Jesus has given them this, this vow, like, I'm going to protect you during this time. I think about it like a dad you know, going off to battle and hangs a cross around his little boy's neck. And he's like, you... You hold on to that when you think that I'm, 
I'm abandoning you. I'm not, I'm not abandoning you. I will be there. I will be back here. And so during the sleepless nights in Corinth, and there were many, Paul would just you know, grab a hold of his beard or feel his very long hair. I don't know how long your hair gets in two years or how long your beard gets, but he had a lot of, a lot of hair. And during those sleepless nights, during those panic attacks, uh, he, he is holding on to this kind of physical, almost like a sacramental thing physical embodiment of this promise that God has made him. In, in 1 Corinthians 2-3, uh, I love that Paul says, Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. I mean, he did not hide his emotional breakdown from anyone. He, he was so honest. He was like, I had panic attacks, I couldn't sleep. And yet, he, he leave, when he leaves Corinth, he goes to Sincrea and he shaves the beard cuts his hair, and he's like, you never protect, you never, you never left me. You never abandoned me. Protect me all the way. And um, there's a song that um, my wife, uh, she was driving along one night um, and just heard the song and just had to stop because uh, she was weeping. So she sent me the song, and then I started crying, and she sent it all the other people. Uh, the song's called Something Better. This is just a few weeks ago. Um, when I got this, I had to stay in my car a few more minutes. And uh, I just imagine Paul singing this to Christ as he's getting his, at the barbershop in Sincrea. Um, he says, you take all my pain and you turn it into something better. There is not a tear that you let go to waste. And all the broken pieces within, you put them together again. Every moment I was sure I would not make it through... I was safe because of you. Remember, we love these rascals.